Hello and welcome to our London History Podcast, where we share our love of London, its people, places and history. This podcast is designed for you to learn things about London that most Londoners don't even know, all in 20 minutes. I am your host, Hazel Baker, Qualified London Tour Guide and CEO of LondonGuidedWalks.co.uk. Show notes plus photos and recommended reading can be found on each associated episode's webpage. Simply go to LondonGuidedWalks.co.uk forward slash podcast. Don't forget, if you enjoy what we do, then please rate and review. It warms the cockles of my heart to read your appreciation of this labour of love. Get that cup of tea, put your feet up and enjoy. Today we're going to be continuing our conversation with Dr Gillian Williamson, who has written a thought-provoking book called Lodgers, Landlords and Landladies in Georgian London. And I can certainly recommend this book. We did focus on lodgers and landlords, including James Boswell, Elizabeth Inchbold, Ephra Benn, William Blake, Samuel Johnson and Oliver Goldsmith in the previous episode. And this time we're going to be focusing on Georgian landladies for the most part of it. As always, show notes with a fun transcript and information about Gillian and her book and with links to purchase there are all available on our show notes. Just go to londonguidedwalks.co.uk forward slash podcast and check out Georgian Landladies. And we're joining the conversation when we're just talking about reputation, not just reputation of the tenants, but also how the landladies and landlords need to keep the reputation of their establishment so they get quality tenants in future. I was going to say respectability is is a currency in itself, isn't it? It is. And it's a key word. One of the things that I get really frustrated about by re- reading, well, historical fiction a lot of the time is that they always make the, the landlady a, a little bit of a, a hussy or penny pinching or that she offers services on the side, no matter whether it's peaky blinders. In. And it really frustrates me. Why can't business, women be business women? I know that's why another thing I thought, looking at it from the, I try to look at, the lodging relationship from both sides, you know, not just the, what the lodger says, but also how it might have been to have a lodger. And that's quite difficult because the sources are biased towards these generally men, but not always, there's Afro Ben and there's Elizabeth Inchbold, the men who keep an account of it or write letters to their family about their lodgings. So it's quite difficult. And sometimes you have to imagine the life of the landlord or landlady on the other side. But yes, I think there's this long running belief set of beliefs about landladies they're either too sexy or old harridans they're either doing something on the side they're they're mean they they won't give you basically things for nothing they add it onto the bill it's extras you know but then they're running a business in letting their rooms why should they let you have the sugar for nothing it's quite an expensive exactly. commodity there's, there's, there's an incident where that charles lamb and his sister get very worked up when they because they were great lodgers because they they didn't have a lot of money they moved around these various lodgings and one bill they were given by a landlady included sixpence for extra sugar that they'd used that week for a visitor who had a lot of sugar in his tea and they're outraged sixpence is quite a lot for sugar so you know it probably was a rate above the actual cost of the sugar plus a bit of profit um, and they're outraged but then you know sugar is a luxury product 
And why would the landlady give you that for nothing? You know, she's not your mother. She's not actually your mother. You might find her motherly, but she isn't your mother or a family or a friend. She is running a profitable business. In fact, the gentleman visitor who had used all this sugar in his tea was Wordsworth, coincidentally. So he obviously had a very sweet tooth, which I, <laughs> which I hadn't realised. Yes, yeah, so people expect them. They, they behave as though landladies are doing this, particularly the women, out of the goodness of their hearts, rather than because they need the income. But I think if you read it from the other side, the landladies are often behaving in a very business-like way. Is it something about being in a patriarchal society where women are normally beholden upon men, i.e. their husbands or their, their brothers, and suddenly they have this, what some people may perceive as a freedom to be a landlady, yeah. but actually it's a, it's a means to an end, isn't it? You don't have much option for earning money as a woman. No, you don't. And so... If you are a single woman, say you're a widow, it's a very good way if you have, if you do, uh, you do have a whole house, and your husband dies, it's quite a good way of being able to stay in the, you know, the home you might love or you've lived for years or near your friends. And if you're a single woman with a trade, usually women's trades are much less well paid than men's. So you get um, someone like Elizabeth Inchball's landlady, Miss Bailey, an unmarried woman who's a milliner on the Strand. She's also letting out at least two or three rooms because we know there were other lodgers as well as Inchbold. And it's a crucial underpinning to her ability to trade as a milliner. It, it, you know, it also gives you, whether you're a man or a woman, if you can let the rooms out and have that little bit of extra income out of your house and shop, it means you can live in a slightly nicer area. And then you'll get better customers. So it's a very, very important element of income for a lot of families. And obviously they don't want to give it away for nothing. No, of course not. Why would they? And I think though you're right. Those things go right the way through to the 19th and 20th century. I, I started collecting postcards from early 20th century, which I buy off eBay, which are landlady and lodger postcards. And there's loads of them. I've got about 60 now. And, you know, I started it because the jokes... And the caricatures and the stereotypes are the same as in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. Sexy landlady, harridan landlady, mean landlady, landlady who hits you with all the extras, doesn't heat the room properly, doesn't wash the sheets between lodgers. All those sort of things are what people thought then or said then. And I think it is very interesting how the business like woman is pushed to the margins. And I suppose also, as you said, talking about, you know, people with the power, often the men with who are actually literate for a start. Yes. They are the ones with the power. And it's a bit like, I suppose, a trip advisor now when you read some of the reviews about yeah. and they, they didn't give us a, a, yeah. a with a sea view, but you didn't ask for one or pay for one. So. Yeah. No, it is the same, isn't it? And I think it, it, you get it particularly because a lot of the sources as a historian, you're very much at the mercy of what there is available for you to use for the research. And most of the people who leave written accounts of their time as lodgers tend to be men, and they tend to be men who regard themselves as having a certain standing in society. They're not necessarily as grand as Boswell, but, you know, they feel comfortably a person, you know, somebody of note. Mm -hmm. And they tend, I think, when push comes to shove and things are going badly, they often regard landlords and landladies a bit beneath them socially. So if things start going badly, they will be writing in their diary that they're vulgar, that they're common, that they talk too much, you know. And you very much see that with Boswell, but also with other people. So I think there's often a, a social gulf between the lodge, a lot of lodgers' feelings about themselves and how they feel about the landlord and lady. They actually slightly despise them mm. right from the beginning. You know, so... 
it's because they're in, often in trade. Well, yeah, it's, it's and it's also a mutually convenient relationship, isn't it? You know, they need a roof over their head, and it the is, landlord yes. needs someone in the room. Yes. So <laughs> it's not. Yes. It's never going to be even, though. No, it's never even, and ultimately, of course, it's uneven. The balance of power lies with the landlord and landlord. It's their home. Mm-hmm. You're only uh, no lodger even now is there other than license. You know, the permission of the host. They can mm-hmm. get rid of you at any time they can just tell you to go and I think that is probably quite hard for some of the grander lodgers with a bit more notion of themselves that they are men they expect to be superior in society and some woman they regard as lower class because she also sells you know hat trimmings or something can can tell them what to do but fundamentally it's her space and she sets the rules as Boswell found when he invaded the parlour in the evening. But however grand he thinks he is, the terriers can tell him to go. Yeah, it's that power, isn't it? Or the lack of power, which turns quite bitter. I think some of them really very uncomfortable with the power that the landlady has over them. It's not something they're used to. And so they configure her as this sort of, in some relationship they understand better. She's your mother. She's your love interest. She's a sort of quasi-spouse, you know. So they have to, or, or a servant, they have to put the landlady in that sort of, bracket in order to be able to make sense of it yeah but in truth she's not she's dealing with the business person yeah that's really great observation now one of the things that i loved reading your book is imagining if i was trying to find a lodgings for myself i this is a time before the internet this is where we forget because when i came to london i just went on spareroom.com people had their adverts up and i didn't have to get cold or anything in january when i moved here it's a it was a very different world there actually treading the streets looking for little cards in the window that was seems to be absolutely the main way that people found a lodging and obviously you might have one already set up by friends or ask around or have a connection with someone who'd set you up before you arrived in London but generally people expected to have to tramp around a likely street look at cards in the window and if they like the look of it they knock on the door and ask to see the room you know that is the fundamental way it was done and actually quite a lot of street scenes in satirical prints about lodgings do actually have that card in the window that's obviously not a historical source that survives. It's just a piece of paper, basically. But, um, yes, that was the main way. And, it's, of course, it's very quick. The landlord or landlady can put it up instantly when they've got a room, take it down when they haven't. It's cost-free. And there's no need to go through a middleman. All those sorts of attempts to monetize that search fail, I think, because most people, nearly everybody is going to want to look at the room before they take it. Mm-hmm. So you can never cut out that going and knocking on the door, having a look at the room, and seeing if on the face of it, you and the landlord and landlady can get on. I think yeah. that, you know, at the fundamental, but basically what I call this haggling in the hall, where you get to know each other a little bit and you're coming to terms, how much a week? Can you knock five shillings off it? Can I have free tea and coffee for that? You know, so, but basically you do have to meet and have a look at the room. Yeah. So yeah, the tramp of the street, Boswell said yeah. he looked at 50. He may be exaggerating before settling on Downing Street. Elizabeth Inchbold writes over and over about her trudge around the streets looking for a new lodging. You know, And I think actually it's someone who read the book because of the way I framed it, could, if they were sort of propelled back to 1780, they could find themselves a room in London. You know, they'd know what to do. I feel I would know what to do now. You know, I'd get a coach from where I live in Essex. It would land in Bishopsgate. I'd stay in a coffee house or an inn overnight. And then I'd go trudging down Cheapside and practice the Strand and the side streets looking for a card in the window. That's what you'd have to do. 
I think I'm fully equipped now to go back in time and, and try yep. that myself. Not like I'd really <laughs> want to, my goodness. No. And one of the other things that you mentioned is about the, the new London. So the, the emerging, well, say villages that are now yeah. blossoming into the, the main of London. You mentioned Islington and, of course, Kensington and Chelsea. I mean, this was a really critical time in their development, wasn't it? It was, yes. I mean, they rose from being, they went from being small rural villages where you might go and lodge in them because you were ill and it had better air places you might go for a bit of recreation at the weekend like the Mozart yes like the Mozart or you might go to Islington for a weekend jaunt if the weather was nice to being actually a really part of London which was just one of the options in the lodging market and it's interesting that in all the new suburbs gradually you get this creep of more regular lodgings if you like everywhere there's new development so for example Great Portland Street, which was a newer bit of London, a bit suburban, rapidly fills up with lodgers. And the stagecoaches were a bit more reliable. People were prepared to walk further. And also you do get it's a bit cleaner, it's a bit quieter. The fact that you can let these rooms underpins the property values in those areas, of course. The knowledge that you can get a lodger means that people, keeps the rents at a certain level, which in itself means that for the developers it's more viable to develop it because you've got this sort of long tail of financing right down to the person in the garret. Yes, so it is interesting, although some of them some of them only really took off the slightly more distant ones when you got the railway coming in. So they were always a little bit peripheral, but they did rapidly, so you'd soon get the same percentage of lodgers in somewhere like Marylebone or Putney as you had in other bits of London. So filling the houses. Very much so. But I say originally when they were more remote, they were very much somewhere you might go for peace and quiet because you didn't want someone calling on you every five minutes because you'd got a respiratory complaint like the Mozarts, you know, heading off to Chelsea for their health. So, yes, it's interesting to think, isn't it, about what people thought of as London. Mm-hmm. So I think it goes to that, what people think of as London and central and what they think of as a bit peripheral. And always in all the sources I looked at for respectable lodgings, it was never to the east. You know, it was never the east, towards the east end. The only mention of the east end in, say, lodging advertisements was Mile End Road, which obviously does have those still, those late 18th century big terraced houses that perhaps ship's captains retired to. That's the only area. So you have also, it shows up, I think, also, this growing understood gulf between respectable London and outcast London, places you wouldn't want to lodge. Mm-hmm. The docks, the east ends, St Giles that sort of sort of area it's all quite fascinating and I know I could talk forever with you because it's it's there's just so much to learn isn't there there is there is it's just I think it just gives a different picture of London life you, know, you see a terrace of streets with those of uniform front doors you think of them as family houses and I just think if you opened the door they weren't necessarily nobody expected them to be at the time no it's fascinating you know no one would necessarily expect the house and I mean, you must have been like a, a Sherlock Holmes, piecing um, bits together from newspapers and that. Well, I started off with life writing, so people's memoirs and journals and letters. And that's why I would noticed it, because people were writing letters from Mr West's, the cabinet maker in the Strand. You know, that sort of thing. Well, that's interesting. He's not got a house of his own, even though he's, I think this one was David Garrick, I think. Oh, so, you know, he's only living in a room in a, in a, in a joinery shop, basically. Um, that's what started it off. So then I used, I did use legal cases, mm-hmm. 
But I think you have to be careful not to assume that everything ends up in crime or a murder or something disastrous. I use civil legal cases where people are in dispute over things. I used the advertisements, the Morning Chronicle, which is a big circulation London Daily, had advertisements which were digitally searchable. So I searched for all the advertisements of lodgings to look at the language that people used mm-hmm. and what sort of person. I mean, the the adver- advertisement showed that this was not a male world, that many women were looking for lodgings and people did not prefer to let to a man necessarily, despite this idea about sex work. There was many women looking for lodgings or being, you know, saying this is due for a woman uh, as men. And then also surveys and things that people did of a district. And then the serendipitous things where we started with the Compton Street fire, where I was looking at the City of Westminster Archive Centre. I put in lodgers and came across this fantastic set of records from a fire that had burnt down 16 houses and realised that... In the 16 houses burnt down and those damaged on this one terrible night, first, luckily, no one died, so that, that's really good. Someone was seriously injured, but nobody died. That The overwhelming number of people spilled out onto the street and then making a claim against the charity that was set up were lodgers. Yeah. You know, there was a tiny number of householders, 40-odd servants, so, you know, two or three a house, perhaps, but this vast tale of lodgers, and not necessarily just one person, someone with a child, someone with a wife and child, living in one room and the records gave you that geography which you don't often get where whoever had been the secretary of this charity had uh, said you know so and so lives in the garret at the back this person lives in the first floor at the front Mm -hmm. and you can tie them into the household and know that they are say a haberdasher or a greengrocer and suddenly you've got a whole repopulation of a street and exactly who's in each room and you realise what little space some householders kept for themselves, basically the minimum. So they're letting out every room they can possibly spare. And they, their servants and their children are living in really perhaps two or three rooms of a, of a house. Yeah. But that, I think, was a real find. And it really did make real that hierarchy of rooms and who lives where. And um, quite how densely populated an area like Soho was at the time. But that, so that was just sheer luck. Well. You know, you're not going to complain about uh, being, being given a gift. No, absolutely not. I mean, what was a particular strength in the book, I've noticed, was that, and this is something that you keep alluding to, it's about the people. Yes. It's not just about the transactions and being no. a historian. You do get swept up with dates and being yes. factual, but there's the human story there yes. as well. Yes. And I found that getting to know these people a little bit more and worrying about them even though they're long dead and gone (laughs) also i think it's terrible to say not very historical you like i like some people i don't like others so much you know which is an awful thing to say so i think well they're quite sweet i'd have them in my house or i wouldn't want some people sometimes say who's the worst lodge you come across and boswell's quite bad because he's very high-handed but i think the romantic poets are absolutely the pits to have in your house because they don't pay they do a runner without paying they're drug addicts with their drug addled friends coming around to the house an absolute nightmare so i think coleridge samuel taylor coleridge has to be the worst lodger that you could possibly have in your house in the georgian period his friends said that actually they would say don't have coleridge in your house (laughs) you'll regret it if you have coleridge living with you 
Oh, brilliant. Well, thank you so much. This has been absolutely brilliant. Eye-opening yet again. And I'm all popped to and uh, to investigate more on my on my own time about this because it's just fascinating. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for the interest in it. That's all for now. See you next time. <laughs>